Before we start this episode, we have a quick message from our sponsors. If you're studying for the Foreign Service Officer Test like us, we have a great study tool for you. Besides listening to our podcast, we also use FSO Compass. On FSO Compass, you can find practice tests for every section, comprehensive courses that guide you through the entire application process, and you can even connect with other aspiring U.S. diplomats. The resources have really helped us prepare, and we hope they help you too. To access FSO Compass and get 10% off your annual subscription, be sure to use the link in our description box. Good luck! Hi everyone! Due to the length of this episode, we had to split it up into two parts, so you're listening to part one. Be sure to check out part two after this. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of How Did We Not Know That? I'm Nat. I'm Jack. And I'm in deep. Welcome. We are really excited. We have our first guest ever today. She's our very good friend in deep. In deep and I actually met while we were studying abroad in Senegal. So she's going to present today on a topic of her choosing. Take it away in deep. Okay. So a <laughs> fun thing is that neither Jack nor Nat know my topic. So I'm really curious to see how they react. Um, so to open, I have a question. What is your guys's worst nightmare if i had to give blood repeatedly like over and over and over okay okay and that i'm really scared of like open spaces like the ocean i'm really scared of the ocean actually mm, that's interesting it's like gonna use it against us mine would probably be having unanesthetized gynecological surgery without my consent Oh, wow. Okay, so the title of my presentation was between reproductive politics or how women's bodies were the original battlegrounds of how men, especially American colonizers and slave owners, gained and kept their power and influence. (laughs) Wow, okay. That's heavy. Yeah. (laughs) You guys, I don't come here to play. I come here to let you know, you know, to spill the tea. And the tea is going to be spilled. This is a rabbit hole. And I'm sorry you're not going to be the same once you come out. Uh, And I hope that's okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. Oh my gosh. I'm ready. I feel like American history, just like the more I study it, the more I'm like, yikes. And I also think it's funny that like, there's these little things that are just like, oh, we never even thought about that. And it's actually like this huge problem that still affects people. Um, But something I also want to highlight before I kind of get like into thick of the presentation is how the resistance to these is sometimes documented. And I really want to like highlight it as we go through because I don't want to like erase the stories of the victims and dehumanize them. And so I want to highlight that these are people who exercise their will when they could. And they often did so against really scary odds and really powerful institutions and forces. So as we're like going through this, we're going to just highlight the resistance and highlight the fact that these were people, you know? Awesome. It all starts with our guy, (laughs) James Marion Sims, aka the father of modern gynecology. And I feel like we all just feel weird about there being someone with the title, the father of modern gynecology, right? Yeah, that's upsetting. (laughs) Sims practiced medicine at a time when treating women was considered distasteful and rarely done. He invented the vaginal speculum, which is a tool used for dilation and examination. And they're all thinking, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. And he also pioneered a surgical technique 
to repair vesicovaginal fistula, which is a common 19th century complication of childbirth in which, okay, get ready, a tear happens between the uterus and the bladder, and that causes constant pain and urine leakage. So this still happens today in developing countries, and it's really avoidable, and it literally happens when a baby is stuck for too long and they like wear a hole next to your vagina and it can happen like next to your bladder or next to your literal anus and it causes oh like leaking God. and I know no one thought this could happen but when it happens it happens and it's a really big problem like in developing countries because people who have this problem are often like first of all the baby usually suffocates oh and dies God. I know because they're they're in there for days like that's how long it takes right <laughs> <laughs> yeah sorry oh um, and also they're often what's the word when you're like excommunicated like thrown out of the tribe thrown out of the village because they can't have a baby because it's stuck because their baby died and because they smell bad because after this happens they like it's just really gross you know and they like have because it's leaking yeah oh my god exactly and so i think they think of it as like a curse or sometimes it's just like kind of distasteful to have around and they're just kind of like banish the woman and this is like really first of all this is really easily repaired by surgery just some stitches you know and also okay I don't want to reduce that I don't know how it's repaired I'm assuming it's just stitches (laughs) (laughs) but also um it's really preventable like if you just have something kind of take the baby out you could do a c-section like there's a lot of ways to like get the baby to come out now but you know if you just don't have any resources well sorry what year is this that he's like inventing this do you know so he's inventing this he was born in 1813 so I think he was inventing this in the 1830s 30s 1840s maybe gotcha okay cool he's american so the father of gynecology is american yeah okay and he was born in lancaster county south carolina (laughs) in 1813 and he entered the medical profession when doctors didn't undergo the same rigorous coursework and training they do today (laughs) after interning with a doctor and taking a three-month course and studying for a year at jefferson medical college he began his practice and (laughs) he later relocated to montgomery county alabama seeking a fresh start after the death of his first two patients. Oh my god. <laughs> what the heck? Third time's a charm, right? Just gotta move to Alabama so they let him have that third try. <laughs> That's no, so bad. The father of modern gynecology. Wow. So it was in Montgomery that Sims built his reputation among rich white plantation owners by treating their human property. This, this article does not play. According to Vanessa Gamble, university professor of medical human humanities at GW, George Washington University, Sims's practice was deeply rooted in the slave trade. And while most healthcare took place in the plantation, some stubborn cases were brought to physicians like Sims, who patched up enslaved workers so they could produce and reproduce for their masters again. Otherwise, they were useless to their owners. And this kind of brings up this concept of soundness. Um, being a sound meant that you could produce and reproduce. So men could produce and women could reproduce. For women, having fistula made them less sound because they couldn't really reproduce as much. It goes into um, the whole slavery and childbearing, which I'm going to get into. But just to finish on our guy, James Marion Sims, there's a lot more on him if you're interested. He started like the first women's hospital, killed a bunch of people, saved some people, you know, and he had, I think, three statues of him that are starting to come down. One of his 
statues was literally in Central Park, opposite the New York Academy of Medicine in New York City. And this was removed on April 17th, 2018, and its current plaque will be replaced by one that educates the public on the origins of the monument and the controversial non-consensual medical experiments he used on women of color, mostly enslaved black women. The names and the histories of three known women whose bodies were used in the name of medical and scientific advancement by the doctor, their names are Lucy, Anarka, and Betsy, will take their rightful place on the new plaque. And I will also mention he did his experiments on slaves without anesthesia because it wasn't invented at the time and also because, I know, and also because they didn't think that black bodies felt pain the same way that white bodies did, which is still a myth that happens to this day. Like, to this day, black people are given less anesthesia on average than their white counterparts because they believe that black people somehow feel less pain. Oh my gosh. And that's James Marion Sims. Oh my god, that's so upsetting that not only is he this awful person, he killed all these women and, like, none of his surgeries were, like, consensual, but how did he get all these statues like I have no idea what I do know is that he started doing surgeries on white women and he did make a lot of advancements because before nobody would even delve into women's reproductive like they were like gross you know and then he started doing surgeries on white women with anesthesia because you know handily it was invented and also you know white women feel pain yeah apparently who knew so not me that white side of me doesn't feel pain so I don't know what you're talking about (laughs) (laughs) oh my god (laughs) so I can just delve into slavery and childbearing because you know this is all all of this research was just a hole that I just dug deeper and deeper into it just doesn't end yeah everything that I'm gonna say is excerpted from birthing a slave motherhood and medicine in the antebellum south by Marie Jenkins Schwartz so Here's like a little bit of background. As of 1808, Congress ended the nation's participation in the international slave trade. So that means that the only practical way of increasing the number of slave laborers was through new births. So if enslaved mothers did not bear sufficient numbers of children to take the place of aged and dying workers, the South couldn't continue as a slave society. And as we know, slavery lasted a lot longer than 1808, right? So they really made it work. Slave trade ends in 1808. Yeah, the slave, like, trade, like, the international slave trade ended in 1808. Okay. But still, like, within the U.S. We had, like, 60, yeah, 60 years of their just, like, breeding more slave now. Oh, my God. Breeding is a terrible, I'm sorry I didn't use that word. No, but that's a word that's used because it's, like, you know, it's not humane, like, the way that this is. You're literally looking at it as, like, numbers. Like, they're not looking them at looking at it as like human beings like yeah they're looking at them like livestock yeah literally yeah literally that's literally disgusting oh my god but rewards for motherhood followed the birth of children for um like female slaves who give birth right so these included extra clothing exemption from harsh punishment and even rarely 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 freedom um some women were able to avoid field or other arduous labor as a result of bearing children a breeder, so these women were called breeders, always fared better than the majority of female slaves. And there were repercussions for barrenness. So young women who had not demonstrated fertility faced the possibility of separation from family, as well as additional labor. If a married couple lived together for long without having a baby, owners would force husband and wife to choose new partners. 
and former slave, his name is Henry Bobbitt, maintained that many marriages did not last longer than five years because if no children were born within five years, husbands and wives were expected to find other spouses. So from the standpoint of enslaved women, the slave owners foray into the scientific management of their bodies, aka just like interest in their reproductive systems, represented something beyond benevolence. I think none of us are surprised. It was an effort to decrease the importance of women's community and to substitute the ways of white men for those of black women. And I found that like really interesting, just the way that was worded. It's like, that's literally what's happening. White men trying to control, trying to make black women's reproductive systems work for them. The women struggle to assert their own customs. So rather than acquiescing, and slaveholders' demands that they bear as many children as possible, enslaved women attempted to regulate childbearing to accord with their own notions of the proper timing and frequency of motherhood. In resisting the dominion of white men in this regard, black women cast themselves as central actors in the unfolding drama that constituted slave life and culture in the antebellum South. So essentially, like the fact that these women like wouldn't always have children whenever it was demanded really, really shaped the narrative of like how slavery continued. Because as we know, like it is only through these women that slavery could continue. So that's the tea. That's what I have on slavery and childbearing. I'm like speechless just because like, oh my god, like you're literally like manipulating and forcing yourself like on every aspect of slaves, like on their bodies and like women especially, like that's so violating and like dehumanizing and like I just can't even I can't even imagine how painful and just how horrifying and <laughs> disgusting that is like it's really upsetting to hear about I don't know I'm like, yeah just the pain of childbirth and childbearing and everything yeah. that you go through with that and then the bond that mothers feel with their children and then your child is literally just being treated as livestock. I know, I'm sure that yeah. I've read things where they get separated at birth and like the child gets sold maybe to another slave owner. It's horrific. Yeah. It is crazy. It's crazy to think about like whatever children you have, like you're not going to have any rights to them. Mm-hmm. And literally like just being thought of as like an experiment, thing, like a test subject. That's just like, that's just so disgusting and that's so scary. Even like giving birth to a child, like any woman in this time period, like must be absolutely horrifying. Like I can't even imagine, <laughs> I'm like so scared. Are there any statistics and like how many like fatalities, like how many women died because of this although I guess this probably wasn't documented I didn't see any numbers there might be but also I think it's hard to tell because I don't know how much they would have actually documented yeah you know other than to suit their own need Mm -hmm. yeah no history is like documented by the winners as they say and especially they're not teaching slaves how to read and write it's hard to find any documentation at all I'm actually impressed that there's at least documentation on this so we know about it I know it's crazy I think that a lot of it also honestly came from like the descendants of slaves because a lot of this was like told through stories and I think it's just like we're gonna go like through a few more subjects but even just like the way that like people are researching these things and it's so important to research it makes me have such respect because I feel like this is so traumatizing to research about and like write about every day you know yeah and very painful for them to relive those experiences to share the story yeah for that to be documented yeah exactly that's so true and so you know I have another question for you you two lovely young humans (laughs) Um, (laughs) when you think of the 1970s what do you think of i think of like the hip hippies <laughs> like i think of v- vietnam war and mm. like people are there's a lot of like unrest and people are 
upset. I think of like the start of the end of social Darwinism and the end of oh. the eugenics practices. Well, so we believe. <laughs> yeah, Jack end. is ready. She knows how this goes. <laughs> okay, that was a way better answer. <laughs> what the heck? It's because I'm studying the Gilded Age right now, so I'm like learning about everything that was put in place, and then it's like ending mm. in the 70s. Okay, so I just want to refresh you guys on Roe v. Wade. It happened in 1973, and it was a landmark decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in which the court ruled that the Constitution of the United States States protects a pregnant woman's liberty to choose to have an abortion without excessive government restriction. And so we can get into some like of the background. There was this woman and her pseudonym was Jane Roe and she became pregnant with her third child and she wanted an abortion. But she lived in Texas where abortion was illegal and so she filed a lawsuit on her behalf in the U.S. federal court against Henry Wade who was her local district attorney. And basically they heard the case, they ruled in her favor and then Texas appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which agreed to hear the case and ruled in her favor, which meant that federally abortion is legal. Abortion in the United States is legal nationally, but abortion laws are also like under state jurisdiction. But technically, like it has to be illegal in all states, but it's regulated by the states. And also, I kind of wanted to highlight this because I felt like this is like the struggle that we hear about, but this is a struggle of white women, as I'm going to kind of like go into more. Like the struggle was different for different populations of women of color. And it's kind of crazy how different the struggles, like they were just not even the same, not even the same issue. And we're going to start with indigenous women. I'm going to start with a, with a fun statistic. In the 1970s, doctors in the United States sterilized an estimated 25 to 42% of Native American women of childbearing age, some as young as 15. That number is insane. Crazy. Did you find out anything like on the process? Was it like, were they using like armed forces to pull women from their homes? What was it? So what they would do is like, they would, women would go in for, you know, maybe like a procedure, maybe like a checkup, often just like giving birth. And then while they were giving birth, there would be a quick (gasps) procedure that was, yeah. Oh my god. And oftentimes it happened without their consent, even knowing. Sometimes it would happen like technically with their consent. But it was like they didn't know, like they were just told it was birth control. They didn't know that it was permanent. They didn't know what it really meant, you know. Although the practice is primarily associated with Nazi Germany, North Korea, and other oppressive regimes, the U.S. has had its share of forced sterilization laws that fit with the eugenic culture of the early 20th century. Um, And I want to define eugenics real quick. It's a right. It's a science that tries to improve the human race by controlling which people become parents, which is a great law if I've ever heard of one. Okay. <laughs> um, oh my god. Just, this is you do not want to voice a bit of me saying this. It's gonna come back when you have a campaign yeah. one day. Like, I need to be more careful, but also, oh, I'm like literally sweating. That's so funny. How crazy that is. Okay, so here's a timeline of some of the more notable events from 1849 until the last sterilization performed in, get ready for it, 1981. 1981. So, uh... That's so recent. Quite recent. So, in 1849, Gordon Linscombe, <laughs> a famed Texas biologist... <laughs> I'm very mature. <laughs> a famed Texas biologist. We're all, like, five. <laughs> that's a dumb name. That's a dumb name for someone who's trying to sterilize people. Right? To start off, your name sucks. <laughs> Secondly, you have a dumb mind. (laughs) Um, So he was a famed Texas biologist and physician. 
and he proposed a bill mandating the eugenic sterilization of the mentally handicapped and others whose genes he deemed undesirable. So although the legislation was never sponsored or brought up for a vote, it was the first serious attempt in US history to use forced sterilization for eugenic purposes. Between now and 1907, there were a few other attempts at passing a forced sterilization law, but none of them passed. And then 1907, Indiana, Ohio's neighbor, for you who do not know, the listeners who do not know, Ohio State University, where we all go and went, you know, right next to Indiana. (laughs) (laughs) And in 1907, Indiana became the first state in the country to successfully pass a mandatory forced sterilization law, impacting the feeble-minded, a term used at the time to refer to the mentally handicapped. Yikes. Wait, that's crazy. I Wait, okay, I really did not realize, like, because I have, like, looked into forced sterilization a little bit, but, like, I didn't realize it, like, there are laws being passed about it. I always thought it was just kind of, like, shady, like... Yeah, like, on the DL. Yeah, that's literally, that's horrifying that there was a literal law. That's so scary. So, in 1909, California and Washington both passed mandatory sterilization laws... California. That's unexpected. Yeah, that's unexpected. In 1927, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Buck v. Bell that laws mandating the sterilization of the mentally handicapped did not violate the Constitution. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes made an explicitly eugenic argument in writing for the majority. It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind oh my god oh my god literally that's insane and we've talked about justice oliver wendell holmes in our is it free speech or espionage episode and like when i was doing research like none of this came up like they were just like oh he's a really influential judge like yeah probably because he literally like said that oh my god like is that crazy okay so this this next fact is fun in 1936 nazi propaganda defended germany's forced sterilization program by citing the u.s as an ally in the eugenic movement world war ii and the atrocities committed by the nazi government would rapidly change u.s attitudes towards eugenics i guess that's what it takes i don't know (laughs) okay (laughs) um actually nazi germany took a lot of our practices as an inspiration for their practices i don't know if you guys know about like the gasoline baths at the border between mexico the border yeah at the border between mexico they would like bathe um mexican immigrants who are waiting to like get citizenship they'd bathe them in gasoline to clean them and those cleaning chambers were inspiration for the gas chambers in nazi germany that's a whole i'm probably gonna have to cut this out because that's a whole nother episode and can of worms but yeah that stuff happened crazy i had no idea what the heck this has been an episode of how did we not know that if you liked it don't forget to subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also follow us on all social media including youtube at how did we not know that if you thought our podcast was low quality we know we thought so too help us improve the podcast by contributing to our patreon thank you for listening and see you guys next week